Damn. So today we are back with uh, episode three, uh, season two, episode three. We've, we've done it. We've kept our promise to, to all of our listeners. So you're welcome. And we think we have a, a good one today. We talked to three different people about um, what really is the modern day road bike. This was the whole angle that we wanted to, to really pursue here. And the road bike has changed dramatically um, in the past five years and more especially in the past probably one or two you know there's really it's the the pace of change is accelerated with different drivetrains brake system wheel technology frame technology and, and it's driven by how people are riding bikes now and i think we heard some really interesting perspectives um on it from uh chris mcgovern who is a uh, former pro bike racer former pro cycle cross racer and he's a frame builder now of mcgovern cycles uh, we talked to Jake from Envy, and then we talked to who's the uh, VP of uh, of product and customer experience there. And then we talked to Nick Legan at Shimano, and we got all of their takes, you know, on really what what this this current road bike is, and at the end of the day, why you need another one. So, Tim, do you uh, did, what did you learn from this episode? I, you know, like the major takeaway, I think, and you'll hear this throughout kind of all three of the, uh, the interviews, but I think the, just the idea that the, the modern bike being something that's made for the majority now of the people who actually ride it in the way that they ride it. And that the bike industry has kind of gone away from sort of prescribing a bike that really worked for pros, but maybe not for everybody else. And, and, and it's like that bike was, was sold to you as the bike that you needed um, where, where now the question that, that folks are asking themselves is how do we actually make the product that works for the majority of people riding bikes, which I think is just like a really refreshing and kind of cool change. Um, so to hear how that's filtered through from a frame builder's perspective and, and how, how Chris like addressed that, uh, to Jake and how Envy has addressed that. Um, and then also with Nick and how Shimano is, you know, uh, making group sets now that, that really are for the average rider. Um, and, and, you know, all three still obviously have those options, you know, for the, for the very pointy end of the, of the spectrum, but that bikes these days are really made, you know, for, for the people, right? Like, that's a good thing. That's, that's a great thing actually. Um, so it was just kind of cool to hear how they, it felt like that was a theme that ran through all three of those interviews. And it was cool to see how they uh, sort of extrapolated that theme onto the part of the bike that they work on respectively. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's a really, I, I think that's the point that that was sort of the aha in all this is, is that we sort of set out to find out what this, you know, what a road, you know, this current road bike is. And I sort of approached it thinking a little bit more about, well, you know, you have a bike that has more clearance, it has disc brakes, electronic drivetrain, it's plumbed, you know, for internal wiring, it might have some, you know, a few other different characteristics. But what we heard is that bikes today are no longer designed for the world tour rider. And that's everything from the frame to the group set to the, you know, to the, to the tires that, that you and I want to ride. It's, it's not the tire that, you know, a pro wants to ride in the Tour de France, so it's. I think you're exactly right. It's it's a good time to be uh, to be a, a cyclist, and uh, and there's a lot of reasons to to really like what's happening. Um, with how the segment, you know, it gets simplified as gravel, right? But how that segment, that genre, has really changed the type of product that's now available, um, you know, on the market. So, yeah, good and stuff. we we hear a lot about this in terms of like the the gravel revolution sort of being rider driven, right? Like people were going and doing these ridiculous events and and needed equipment to do it, and so that kind of spurned equipment manufacturers to to build that equipment. Um, and I think that's just a really cool piece of all of this is that it's driven by by you and me and and people like us and. People, and you see that working a little bit in reverse now because you see like the world tour bikes now have disc brakes and, you know, this was something that, that wouldn't have happened recently. And you have, you have aero, you know, the Venge, the specialized Venge, the, which is the ultimate aero road bike can take a 32 C tire, you know? So these are, these are major changes that are sort of working back and forth, you know, from, 
from what uh, the consumer wants now is also making sense in some ways for you know for the for the World Tour Pro too. So good stuff. So we hope you uh, hope you like these guests. They're all super smart, much smarter than us. Very knowledgeable. They are all badass bike riders and athletes in their own sense too, which was part of the reason we wanted to talk to these guys. Um, we're not into just talking to marketing hacks who, uh, you know, regurgitate stuff all day. These guys get out there and do it. And so they can, they can really, uh, speak, uh, speak knowledgeably about what they're talking about. And then you can also hear a little bit in the way that they go about designing products too. So enjoy the show. Plus, you guys have five five listeners now because I listened to the podcast. So, no, that's six, six. Yeah, no, seven. Seven. Oh Oh, boy. (laughs) Yep. Look out. Yeah. Somebody asked where they. Somebody said they couldn't find it on Stitcher. Um, on uh, on I posted on Strava, and somebody said, "Oh, I wish it was on Stitcher." The only reason I listen to SoundCloud is for your podcast. So that's you know. That's like seven and a half right there. Let's give a shout out to Nick in uh, Green Valley for that one. Just quit counting now, man. Yeah, my mom oh, yeah. sometimes goes by Nick in Green Valley. You should know that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we we it's a, this is a uh, you know it's all hands on deck kind of affair to make this podcast successful. Got to yeah. do what you got to do. Mm-hmm. Yes. So for everybody who doesn't know yet, we have Chris McGovern uh, on with us, and we're talking about what exactly the modern day road bike is and the different interpretations of what that is. So. A little bit on Chris's background. He is a former uh, pro cyclist, former cycle crosser. Um, he is a uh, frame builder now, custom frame builder with McGovern Cycles up in uh, Nevada City, and then also a coach to a number of pretty elite and well-known athletes like McTubbin, uh, Torben Otenblatt, and some other guys. So Chris has got a lot going on and certainly has a lot of expertise to weigh in on this subject. So thanks for joining us, Chris. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. So to start, let's establish your bona fides. Um, is if in case we didn't already, exactly how? What is the minimum number of tattoos that a frame builder has to have to really be considered <laughs> legitimate? I think it depends on your birth year. <laughs> ah, okay. I don't or like know, a Chinese okay. zodiac symbol, you know, like year of the. Yeah, love it. Yeah, that's a good question. Maybe maybe like my era of frame builders are just we're just like people that can't work with other people, and we end up getting tattoos. <laughs> I don't know. I I don't know. <laughs> yeah, Tim and that we can uh, we can certainly appreciate that because we we don't necessarily all, uh, like always working with our contemporaries. So we like you know we like talking to to people like Chris McGovern with tattoos about bikes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what we're talking about here, and, and we think you're probably going to have a unique perspective on this just because of your ability to really um, react much faster to what, how, you know, changing trends and patterns of how people are riding bikes and, uh, you know, than a, than a big producer that, you know, relies on a six to 12 month development process. But I think also interestingly is, is just how your background sort of blends that road and cross bit together and, you know, they sort of meet, I think, in a lot of ways and what, what that modern day bike is. So, you know, what, what is your interpretation of, of what that, of what a modern day road bike might be? Well, it's an, it's an interesting, um, interesting topic because it's, it is, it is exactly the reason why I got into frame building. Um, you know, having ridden, you know, um, since the eighties, you know, I rode steel lug bikes that were longer and lower and they just descended with, you know, you could go down a windy descent at 60 miles an hour eating a sandwich with your hands off the bars, you know, and, and, and sounds this, like a good idea. Well, I mean, you know, you, you've been riding. I, I was just doing that at lunch, actually. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't yeah. do that? But I mean, you know, you do that on a, mo- you know, there was an, a time when mass produced bikes because of the, just the way the molds worked and the, kind of the averaging of the geometry of the head tube angles and wheelbase lengths and stuff like that. You know, you couldn't, the bikes were becoming really uh unpredictable at speed especially when trying to turn in fact you might even say they were twitchy or you had to like unsteer the bike a little bit um and you know as as i went from racing racing steel lug bikes into you know being on professional teams where you didn't have a choice of what bike you rode i really noticed like oh my gosh i don't like any of these bikes i have to ride you know and that was like my (laughs) throughout my whole career i was like man i've never had a bike i liked 
Um, so when I retired, I, I like didn't have a road bike and I had to give my last road bike back to the, whatever last pro team I was on or whatever. And all I had was a cross bike. And so I was throwing road tires on it and riding like back and forth to Downeyville. And, you know, there's a lot of good descents on that. And, and I was like, Whoa, this thing handles like my old Della Santa I had when I was 16 years old. And so I started really shaking that out, like seeing if I was just imagining that or what was going on. <clears throat> and, um, I started looking at the numbers, chainstay length, bottom bracket drop, you know, front center, uh, overall wheelbase length, trail, fork rake, these types of things. And I noticed what I noticed was is a, a, a steel road bike from the late eighties, mid to late eighties had the same geometry as a cross bike in the early two thousands. I was like, I was like, Whoa. <laughs> and you know, so I just started like, uh, figuring that out for myself. And it, and I didn't, I wasn't preaching to the choir or telling people that's what they needed. I was just seeking that out for my own bikes. Um, now as we've moved into this new era of, you know, disc brakes through axles, everybody wants to run 32 C tires on their road bikes. The, the mass produced bike has been forced into that longer wheelbase just to make the tire clearances. And I think, and I think what the result is, is a better, handling bike hmm. if that if that gets it out all, all at what you're asking yeah it does so the so it's a good question does does the the spec drive the geometry or does the geometry help drive the spec i think in a lot of ways well i think you're dealing with it's it's at a crossroads because the spec um it, the spec drives your design constraints right so if you've got tires pushing out your chain stays have to move out, but you have drivetrain limiting your, your width, exterior width. So your, your drivetrain's pushing in. So what do we have? We have the ad or not the advent, but the rejuvenation of one by chain rings, uh, coupled with the bigger tires. And then we go to the asymmetric offset, all these drop chain stay, all these other solutions to try to accommodate two chain rings. And but, but at the end of the day, you still have to lengthen the chain stays. It doesn't matter because the circumference of that wheel with a bigger tire is bigger. So do you think, uh, so it's an interesting question you bring up too. Now, one by versus two by and the way that affects how you approach designing a, a frame. Um, with 12 speed coming, it's here, you know, with SRAM and it's probably not far away. Well, it's right around the corner with Durace too, right? Do, do you envision that's going to really start to to get people to look a little bit more closer at a at a one by setup kind of kill the front railer and then you know you as as a frame builder how how do you think that's going to affect your the decisions your customer makes or perhaps the recommendations you make to your customer mm -hmm. about what you know what they should be doing for their bike well me personally i haven't had a front derailleur on my bike since man i can't even remember <laughs> like it's, it's been a while. Like, I, I just don't, I don't need it. I don't want it. I don't like it. It's like, doesn't, I don't need it anymore. Um, <clears throat> but I'm not racing like anymore. So, and I have even tempted to build up a one by road bike. I've got a, um, a red axis gravel bike now one by 12 and I'm running a 46 chain ring on it. Um, and I ride everywhere on that thing. And it's, it, it goes plenty fast with that 46 10. I mean, I could go 48, I could go 50 if I was strong enough, but I don't think I could climb around here with either of those chain ring options. Um, as far as what I see from my customers, I would say 90% of the bikes are one by. Yeah. So do you think the, so is the, is your customer maybe, this is going to, this is a hard question to phrase, but who is your customer versus say the, the Cannondale or specialized customer? Are they maybe a little bit more forward leaning? Are they looking for something a little bit different or do you think they just know more about what they want? Well, I think like my customer is usually, you know, someone who's like, uh, you know, recreational typically, but they like nice bikes. They like custom bikes. They might have, you know, they might have a long femur or a long torso or just, they just don't want an off the shelf bike or whatever. Um, and, and then when we get down to component talk, it's one or two conversations. Um, typically they're like, Hey, what would you run? Or they already have, 
they either they already have done their homework and they they know what they want and then on that side of it it's either there's like this weird brand loyalty thing or they've actually or it's actually experience driven if that makes sense so so they're either like shimano guys or they're campy guys or they're sram guys and that's that or it's like no i you know i had a two by last year for crossing gravel and I had so many issues with chains or whatever it is. Like they have had an experience which has led them to this current configuration that we're about to throw on a bike. Hmm. So what do you, what would you envision is somebody comes to you and says, I want to buy, I want to build a road bike that I can just kind of go and do everything, say absent lost and founder DK. Um, what, what would you tell them they need? Well, I guess I would ask them my, my first question would be, how what what's the biggest tire you envision riding um you know if if they come back and say they want a 32c road tire then that's basically the only thing that's going to change really between um a quote-unquote all-rounder that could do loss and found and an all-rounder that couldn't um would be chainstay length i mean with my chainstays with my carbon chainstays they're designed to accommodate for up to a 45 C tire and two chain rings. And then on the, on the road, on the road version of that, it's up to a 30 C chain uh, tire and two chain rings. So it's kind of, I, I've, I've built those parts around those defaults. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's really what, so when you talk about the, the big decisions of the modern road bike, I think, <clears throat> you know, can you sum it up by saying it's, I think in a lot of ways, right? Like you can, it, it sounds like from your perspective too, your cross bike really drove some of what that modern day road bike looks like. And if take, for example, like the, say the tarmac that Sagan is going to ride in the Tour de France, mm-hmm. right? Like a lot of that, that bike has been driven by things like, like cross, yeah. right? It's got disc brakes, it's got more clearance, you know, the, obviously the chain stays are going to be a little bit different, but I thought it's been really interesting to see how that pure road race bike has really been driven by some of the shifts that have happened elsewhere, you know, in, in, in the sport and being, you know, being, um, it's interesting. Is it like, is that a better bike or is that because of the, because of those reasons, because of say on the average person's bike tubeless, you know, electronic drivetrain, more clearance for bigger tires, disc brakes, right? Like, is that just a better bike period or is that the bike that the consumer wants to buy? And so it's under Sagan. You know, I think it's a better bike. Um, I do. There's been, you know, the, the, the rate of, I even hate to call it progress in this industry in the last couple of years, <laughs> the seasonal progress uh, that comes has been coming so quick in the last I don't know, six years, like the change, the constant change of parts and, you know, axle widths and bottom bracket standards. And you got to have this, you got to have that, you know, we've gone from, you need a 27, five, 160 travel mountain bike to like a, a hardtail with 140 fork that's fully tucked, you know, now it's like, it just doesn't stop. Um, and I think with the gravel segment or this all road segment, this is a really good place we've arrived at with the, the through axle configuration, the disc brakes, the wheelbase lengths. Um, you're you're getting you're getting very stable and confident building riding machines. The bottom bracket drops are appropriate m- most of the time. You know, the, the you, it's just a it's a it's a ride that instills confidence in multiple surfaces, and I think that's just a win for everybody. It almost sounds like hearing just kind of replaying what you've been saying over the last couple of minutes. Like we started at this place that we've kind of come back to and that, and then maybe we'll stick around at for a while (laughs) is kind of what I'm hearing. Right. You know, I, I totally agree with that. And I don't know, I think, I mean, my, my theory on it is, is when we, when we really took off from like, you know, it wasn't that long ago, really, if you think about it, we were still racing. I, you still knew your frame builder in like 1996 or seven. You know, you still knew that guy or you were riding a, a Gorchioti or a, a Colnago or something like that, you know, um, that were steel lug bikes and everyone had the same wheels. Everyone, you know, STI was maybe just coming out and wheels were just getting a little bit fancy. Titanium might have been coming around, but we didn't have these mass produced bikes. And I think or, or they didn't have as much as the market at the time. Mm-hmm. And, and then as that is that as that shifted where that the 
the mass produced bike just totally took over the market large in part, you know, just with uh strategy of specialized, um, you know, they just kind of took over. And I think my theory is, is that from a manufacturer standpoint, you know, we had four sizes of bikes, right? You remember the, the first giant compact frame, there are four sizes and you fit those bikes with seat post and stem. And that was it. Um, right. Hmm. Right. Yeah. And the wheelbases were what they mm-hmm. were and the forks all had the same rake, the head tube and the seat tube angles were probably all the same within a half a degree. And I think it comes down to, um, the expense of molds, the tooling, right? So I think they minimize the expense on the tooling by averaging the numbers across a larger scope of size run. And they just said, let's see if it works. And, and, and people, people bought into it. And, and then we ended up with these short bikes and they were like, well, these are race bikes and race bikes have to turn nine degree turns and criteriums and da, 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 da. And the whole notion of ride characteristic and quality just went out the window and it got replaced with how stiff is it? How light is it? Mm-hmm. And you can, I mean, to this day, you can walk up to any dude at a coffee shop who's got a $12,000 tarmac or whatever. And, and, you know, you can be like, oh, is that your new bike? And he'll be like, yeah, man, I'm so stoked. It's the nicest bike I've ever had. And you can ask him, how does it ride? And I guarantee you, he's going to take the water bottles off it, take the saddlebag off it and be like, feel how light it is. It's so stiff. But he's not going <laughs> to, so he's true. not going to tell you how it rides though. Cause he doesn't even know what that means probably. Yep. Yeah, it's so true. Uh, it's funny that that weight thing still, it's like this, uh, you know, it's like the, the 70s flat drug flashback that people just, cyclists just can't get away from is, you know, the dude in spandex can't help but point out how light his bike is. <laughs> right. I'm, oh, if you take the pedals off, it's only 14.2 pounds. Yeah. Right? Uh, well, yeah, because I ride my bike without pedals all the time. Yeah. You know, I always joke when so, they take the water bottles off, I'm like, man, we should invent a lighter water. <laughs> right because you don't really need no, those you don't need riding to the coffee shop h2 no yeah, <laughs> yeah we're on to it patent pending patent pending <laughs> yeah yeah no but i mean to that point right like it was only a couple years ago i think if i remember correctly that like specialized said we're making we're adjusting our geometries based on the size we're not just gonna correct do it all out of a couple of molds but we're going to really um, increase the number of molds so that you know, the sizing is a little bit more, you know, a little bit, right. A little bit better for the person. I think that's to, to Tim's point. That's, that's kind of, and to your point, the past kind of catching up almost a little bit with yeah. the future to, to really arrive where but we I are. I almost wonder if those choices are at a crossroads with the demand for bigger tires, you know, because yeah, of, that's, with I a mean, bike with, mm-hmm. with 395 chain stays there's just no way you're going to fit a big tire in there without like having a 75 degree seat tube angle or something you know it's just not going to work yeah and you know it's it's interesting because it's um i've i've found myself like you know going to 28s a couple years ago and now i'm basically riding 30s or 32s all the time like why do i even want to bother riding 28s you know (laughs) like I don't care how much the bike weighs. I want it to ride well. I want it to chew up the crappy pavement we have here. You know, I want to be able to go roll on dirt if I see a dirt road and enjoy it, you know, have a little more volume and yeah, exactly. And not, not worry about, um, not be limited by equipment. And I think it's interesting to see how, I mean, I have some friends that you still race that are still on like, you know, riding like 25 and stuff. I'm like, I haven't ordered a 25 (laughs) C tire since we worked for a, French wheel company that that was what they thought was current a few years ago, you know? So it's, it's, uh, it's a little bit of still some people holding on to some of those hard, you know, those, those hard fought beliefs and not, not quite giving them up yet when there really is some really good options out there. Well, I wonder too, if it's, if it has to do with the, like the industry, I've never really figured out what, what drives the industry. Like, is it the consumer or are you, is the industry telling the consumer what they should buy? But then I think like, cause if you look at it like forever, you know, it's kind of funny when you go, you know, you go to a big group ride, like in Southern California, like the Swami's ride or something. And everybody's on the top end race bikes. And you know, the minute it goes over 23 miles an hour, like 70, 80% of the people are just popped. So you're like, okay, obviously not bike racers. Um, but you have, <laughs> but, but everyone's mm-hmm. buying these, the high end race bikes. 
And and so that's the industry is always pushing those. And even it, as it trickles down, it's still race bike, race bike, race bike. And now maybe it's become more acceptable to not have a race bike per se and have these all road bikes or whatever you want to call them uh, with more with more endurance style geometry or just more relaxed geometry or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and it's OK now. And then the industry's like, sweet, this is OK. Now we can sell them a twelve thousand dollar all road bike. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. I mean, uh, yeah. yeah. I, I, well, this is my personal opinion. I, I heard this great quote the other day that if, if you wait for the customer to tell you what they want, then, then the time, the opportunity is passed. Right. And I think, I think that in itself is the difference between, you know, a custom builder like yourself versus, I mean, in a lot of ways, like Specialize and Trek and those guys, they were way behind on the, on catching up to, to this trend. I mean, in some ways they, they sort of started it, right? Like you, you can make a good argument that like the Damani or the, the Roubaix were some of the first that got people thinking, I don't just need a traditional race bike. Yeah. Right. But it, it sort of stopped too. I mean, those first Roubaix is like a 25 C tire that was considered <laughs> really groundbreaking that you could put a 25 C tire on it and now or 28 C tire. And now it's like, yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's nothing but a pure Tour de France race bike that, that would only have you know, only be limited by that. But I think, I think the market caught up very quickly and I think events drove that catching up very quickly and customers started saying, yeah, that's, that's not what we're looking for. And then you see, you know, the builders like yourself really, I think they got a handhold much, much quicker because of your ability to adapt quickly and, uh, you know, sort of serve what the, what the customer's looking for. And I think it has to do with like, you know, how, how long have you been riding bikes or paying attention to it? Especially when you're, when we're talking about this route, like now, now they're trying to split hairs on, you know, gravel adventure, gravel, cyclocross, cyclocross, cyc race bike and all this stuff. And, and, uh, you know, I've, I've often wondered like, okay, so this company X is saying, oh, we sell a a gravel bike it's not yeah. for cyclocross and so you look at the geometry right. <laughs> and you look at the geometry and you're like okay that's a novara from 1984 a touring bike and um if you and, and now you've got through axles and disc brakes on it and internal routing but the geometry is really really long and the bottom bracket's super super low and i'm like oh yeah like that's a 26 inch mountain bike from 1986 like do you know, like we, when, when we first started mountain biking, all we had was gravel roads and we called it mountain biking. And do you know what happens if you touch your front brake when you're drifting in a gravel turn like that, because the bike's so long and low, you wash out immediately. And then you, you add a 160 rotor disc brake to that equation with hydraulics. And now all of a sudden you're just slapping. Um, so yeah, I've, I've often wondered, I'm like, are these people riding the bikes or are they just in Taiwan? And they're like, that one looks good up on the wall. Let's put our name on that one. Or I don't, I don't know how that process works. Well, we'll have to ask our, uh, our friends over in Taiwan. We're not, we're not too familiar either. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, there's that, that whole I, thing I totally of open know. mold and closed mold and like, yep. we've got this stuff already in the can, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, then how do we sell it? It's like, here's how, we do we sell how do we it? sell yeah. it? So it comes yeah. down to yeah, branding, we, right? Yeah. Then it becomes yeah, a marketing back then. branding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we. Yeah. It, this was actually yep. kind of a bummer. I remarked on it to Chris. I was riding a, an event last weekend, and you know everyone's just kind of in the shoot, waiting, waiting to get things started. And someone, we were riding some what was going to be some pretty sandy stuff, and someone made the comment like, "Oh yeah, this bike is really more for like East Coast gravel." <laughs> And it was, it, was, it was such a bummer to me <laughs> though, fantastic. you know, like it, on so many levels, because like, I think what, what we, what I really like about this equipment is that it, it's so nonspecific in a lot yeah. of different ways, you yeah. know, it's, it's the bike you need and then you're good and you don't it's have to spend versatile. time thinking about gear anymore. You know, you can yeah. spend time riding and like thinking about better things. Exactly. And, uh, Head out the door. Yeah. Totally. And so to hear yeah. someone say like to segment gravel to that degree, like it's regional specific was just like, Oh, you're totally missing the point here, dude. Well, I mean, I could, I could yeah, see I think this, I, that idea. Is... Go. Oh, Sorry, I was going to say, I, I could see like if he was riding like, you know, some small frame builder from like Stowe, Vermont or something. And the guy had, you know, <laughs> yeah. oh, my job, you know, I ride these roads and I've the, I, my geometry specific to this area or, or something like that. I mean, I, or like tube diameter, but, but if it's, if he's riding like a Cannondale or something, I don't know. Yeah, I think that idea of segmentation beyond what tire and perhaps what what yeah. wheel you need is is 
Hopefully the industry doesn't start going down that road too much. <laughs> if there's money to be made there, they, I'm sure they will. Yeah. Yeah. It's paid with, with dollar bills that road, <laughs> as a matter of fact. <laughs> well, where can people uh, find you online and uh, where can they check out your, your wares um, and uh, where can they catch you on the ground? Yeah. McGovernCycles.com is our uh, static website. Um, and then um, at McGovernCycles is the Instagram. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank yeah. you a bunch for this. This is super insightful. And uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll hope to talk to you again in the future about uh, uh, perhaps what the next iteration of uh, the road bike is in about eight Thanks, months. Thanks, guys. That was fun. got this uh this guy jake here uh jake pantone um some of you guys might know him we've come to know him through our work with envy um probably one of the most knowledgeable marketing guys you're gonna meet uh not even really a marketing guy uh kind of kind of kind of more of a product guy which is why we love to talk to him about stuff like this um so we're chatting modern road bike and kind of no company has done a better job of kind of creating their aftermarket offering, uh, to adapt to the way people ride and, 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 and where people ride and how they're riding these bikes these days than envy. So we thought, uh, Jake would be a good person to ask a couple questions, kind of get his, get his sense here. So Jake Pantone, welcome, welcome back to the outdoor office podcast. We made it to season two. They haven't taken our microphones yet. So, uh, that's probably, <laughs> there's always, there's always an opportunity later for that, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's coming for sure. But yeah, we're still trying. <laughs> Wow. Jake was actually the very first guest on the show. Oh, man. Episode one, uh, season one, episode one. So welcome well, thanks back. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Tim, I feel a little success in the fact that we tricked Jake on, into coming back on, which is probably a bigger accomplishment than getting him on the first time. <laughs> oh, come on. It's always a pleasure. That's right. You get to talk about bikes, which is a topic that I enjoy. So let's do it. <laughs> Yeah, and some of your bonavites too. So I think Tim's point not not only are you the most one of the most or the most knowledgeable marketing guys that we get to talk to, but I think when we're talking bike industry or sports industry in general, one of the most legit, like somebody who goes out and and actually does it, and a longtime bike racer, um, bike adventurer, skier, water skier, but. You know, I think one of the things that really impressed us as we started working with Envy was that when you guys set out to design a product, like say a gravel wheel, for example, you don't just update something that you have, you you re-engineer it from the ground up and you and what really impressed us, say with the with G23, for example, which is a good example of a modern day wheel, is that you guys went and did the hardest bike race or went out to the hardest bike race that you could find with, with dirty cans, right? Super demanding on any kind of road equipment and came up with, walked away with some real deep insight from that, right? And and so how, how, do, you, how do you guys factor, how do you guys approach, take your approach to, to designing a new product and then roll it into what customers really want today, you know, with what they're doing on the road? Oh, well, uh, thanks for the uh, intro. I I think it's a bit of a stretch to say I'm one of the most knowledgeable (laughs) marketing guys or whatever in the bike industry, but um, I I appreciate it. I'll take it. (laughs) The, uh, um, you know, I think, you know, Envy, we're, we're no longer the brand new brand anymore on the street. You know, we've been around for going on, I think this is our 12th year of, being the brand we are now. So we're coming up on 12 years. And, you know, I think the thing that has always made us successful is um, with the products that we bring to market uh, is the fact that we really um, engross ourselves in the product development itself. And really the more simple way of saying that is we're riders. And like, like you said, you know, we, we, um, when we have a project, we really like to make sure we understand 
what are the needs that the consumer has. And the only way to do that as a product development company is to, you know, use a product the way that the consumer is going to be using it. And so luckily for us at Envy, that means that we get to ride bikes and we get to do events. And, you know, we really have you guys to thank for our um, involvement in the Dirty Konza. I mean, what an awesome event. And, you know, we, you know, when we first um, partnered with you guys a few years ago, you said, hey, we need to be at this event, you know, and it's, it's, it's where the epicenter of all things kind of gravel is, is at. And we went that first year and it was, um, you know, it was, it was an awesome event, you know, myself and a few others from Envy specifically did not race. We actually went out and did support for you and some, uh, you and some media guys. And then the next year, you know, we were inspired and said, well, a supporting it's probably harder than racing it. So we said, we should probably, uh, probably <laughs> get out and, um, try this thing on for ourselves. But, you know, it's, it's that sort of thing. And, um, that really helps inspire the products and the needs. And I mean, that's a cool event, but you know, the, the development for any product starts well before any one specific event, you know, it's the, the events anymore are really us, you know, just being able to interface with our consumers. And that's kind of the new, I mean, marketing it's no genius there's no genius involved in it it's getting out there and talking to the consumers and understanding how they're using the product and hearing firsthand what their experiences are and you know oftentimes it's it's easy as a brand to sit back behind the keyboard and read stuff that's written online or comments in a forum but you know those often tend to be hyper negative because you know people that are motivated to spend their valuable time writing on writing on a forum or a public page often aren't doing it because you know, there's, they're not, it's not usually because the experience has been really positive or great. Um, and yeah. so what you get when you go to those events is you get to hear how everything is working and how everything is working. Right. And yeah, if there's issues, you're there, you're able to address them and you're able to, you know, firsthand talk to the consumer and say, okay, well, you know, oh yeah, we wrote that section. Okay. I know exactly what you're talking about. We were out there doing it too. Oh, you, you know, you, this is what you felt there. Awesome. You're supposed to, that's what, that's what the wheel's designed to do, or that's what that product's supposed to do. You're supposed to you know, feel, you know, more comfortable or compliant, or if you're not having that experience, like what is it that's causing that? Let's talk about your tire pressure. And so it's really, I mean, I think the genius of the product development we do is that we really try to get out there with the consumers at whatever the event is. And, you know, we're limited. We don't have the resources to be at every event everywhere, but we, we like to pick the ones that we're most excited about. And then we try to be there and enforce to, uh, to participate in the sport that we love. And as a result, we're inspired to design the product that we do. So you have, so taking DK as an example, you have DK and then you have right now the tour of California going on with Dimension Data on the complete other end of it, right? Like they're both sort of outliers where Dimension Data is the ultimate in <clears throat> road racing, um, sort of core road racing performance. DK, I always say, is the outlier to how people really want to ride their bikes because it's it's pretty brutal and it's, you know, requires very specialized equipment, right? So today what it seems like today there's a lot that lies in that middle ground somewhere between the two you've got the roadie coming over you know that's not not a dimension data racer obviously and then you also have a lot of people who are not ever going to want to do dk or have no interest in it but there's certainly some merging of how um, people seem to be what kind of equipment people want to be buying or where, where they want to be riding their bikes today that merges those absolutely i mean i think you don't have to look really any further than the event that was a couple of weeks ago, which is the BWR, the Belgian waffle ride where, um, it, it was my first year back at that event and in three years. So I went and did it and I was there in 2016. And then this year I, we just got back from that event last, you know, a couple of weeks ago and to see the amount of growth and the depth of the field and the people, you know, the riders who were there participating in the event was, um, pretty, pretty eye-opening and it really reinforced the, uh, you know, the evolution that is road riding and racing. I mean, um, you know, both in the depth in terms of like the interest and the participation. I mean, I don't, I don't know what the numbers were the year I did it, but I know that my, the, per, you know, my average speed in the race was nearly identical to this, my average speed when I did it three years ago, only I was <laughs> 50 places deeper <laughs> <laughs> than I was three years ago in a race. So I think I, you know, I, I think I went from like 30 something to deep 80 something, you know, this year and um, with, with going the same speed. So it just shows that the, the amount of attention and the, the depth of the field is increasing. And I think the reason for it is people are, I mean, it's, it's, it's people are 
interested in doing something new and like these these events are um they're fun they're they're unique they're dynamic it's it's more than you know the the same old sort of road race or criterion or stage race or whatever you know it's it's adding new elements and you know there's a little bit of something for everyone like whether you're a dirt rider a pure gravel guy or a road guy coming to the mixed surface thing it's it's uh it's it's really interesting right now because it's I mean, it seems like the writing's on the wall that this is what the future of sort of the everyman racer is going to be, where we're, where the racer types are not going to be so hyper-focused on pure road racing unless you're really coming up from the junior ranks and looking to, you know, really become a professional road racer. Um, for the rest of us, you know, those of us that missed our missed our ticket into the world tour, um, you know, this seems to be the the place where all the action is happening and where the investment's taking place. And, and the bikes are, the bikes are, uh, the bikes are uh, also representative of, of that, um, of that shift. And, you know, as an example, in 2016, we, that's the year that we um, launched our first AR series era wheel. So it was the 4.5 AR. Um, and it was a fairly unique wheel that was inspired by, you know, our time spent with dimension data training for the classics um, you know, realizing that we needed to develop an aero wheel that could handle high volume tires, you know, talking about tires that measure 30 millimeters or so. Um, so we developed this AR wheel. It was, it's the 4.5 AR is still in our line and it's, it's become one of our most popular selling wheels. And then just, um, just this last month, you know, right before Sea Otter, we launched uh, the shallower, lighter weight version, which is the 3.4 AR. And both of these wheels are aerodynamically optimized around you know, a 28 millimeter labeled tire, which, you know, given the rim's width uh, ends up being about a 30 millimeter tire. But what we're seeing is from 2016 to 2019 is that in 2016, there were really no bikes that could even accommodate these wheels. And, you know, we were kind of sort of scraping anywhere we could to find a bike that would work. Most of us were using cyclocross bikes and here and there you could find a um, sort of like an endurance classified road bike that would that would fit the tire size, but most of those just barely cleared. Is the tire clearance on those was really sort of 28 millimeters was kind of the max size. When so when your tires are 30 to 32, it was really sort of barely any space between the crowns and the and the uh, um, the bottom bracket area and the seat tube, you know, for clearance of the tires. And so now you fast forward to 2019. And the World Tour race bikes are all basically going to clear a 32 millimeter tire, um, as, you know, as examples like Madone, the New Venge, the New Tarmac, um, you know, and, and a litany of other World Tour race bikes are all clearing these super high volume tires. I mean, the Belgian Waffle Ride this year was one on a Madone, um, which isn't uncommon for that event, but the fact that you can run an aero road bike with a 30 mile, a 30 millimeter wide road rim, if you want, with a 32 millimeter tire is pretty cool. Um, and I think that just goes to show that uh, road racing equipment is evolving to accommodate the type of riding that not only world tour racers want to do, um, but that everybody wants to do. And it's not at a sacrifice of performance either. So, yeah, I think that's, I think it's, it's an interesting point. And, and, curious about your take on how, how do you design components for now a bike that has actually looks a little bit like a mountain bike, right? Like it's got really wide internal rim widths for high volume tires. You have disc brakes. Um, you have a lot with, um, uh, DI2 or electric drivetrains. So how, how is that in that relatively short time changed the way that you think about designing the next, you know, product for this space? Um, I think it's really, <clears throat> I mean, disc brakes have been huge in terms of their integration into the bike. So with the onset of disc brakes, you, you remove the limitations of the box you had to design within for, for uh, rim brake calipers for the most part. Um, and so from an aerodynamics and a frame design standpoint, uh, there's the window is open for us as a wheel manufacturer to really design a rim shape that is, you know, optimized or specific to the this the volume of tires that we're wanting to accommodate um, from a component standpoint you know in some cases it's uh you know not not a whole lot has changed there more but you know we're also looking at different bar shapes um you know there's i think the big eye-opening thing has been you know the 
the gravel bar we came out with um, has been wildly popular. I mean, it's 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 our fastest selling bar. Like we we sell more of those at a faster rate than about anything these days. And you know, it's looking at that bar and saying, you know, there's there's probably a bar in between this bar and our current you know era road bar in terms of flair and geometry and you know the the shape of the drops and everything that would really make for a really killer um, AR type of bar. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's nice having electronics because they're, you know, you don't have to worry as much about the angles that you're bending housing and cables through. So you can kind of run cables internal wherever you want, however you want without affecting the shifting. Um, and, and those sorts of things sort of open up some windows in terms of, you know, the shape of the bar, how tight you can make the bends and uh, ultimately you kind of you can kind of have whatever you want in terms of uh, comfort, and you know, given that you're molding carbon, it's kind of the sky's the limit in terms of uh, what you can do with bar shapes and component shapes, and um, yeah, it's exciting. So going going back to something that you touched on, I, I think a lot of people don't know this. So how, what what are the differences be, between how you design a wheel for a, ri a rim brake wheel versus a disc brake wheel? Because I think this is something that a lot of people aren't, aren't familiar with. They just assume it's the same thing. One just has a hub that can accommodate a disc, and one just has a, a brake track on it. Um, we've been making, you know, disc brake specific rims for mountain bikes since before day one. Basically, the first wheel we ever actually rode was a mountain bike wheel. Um, and you know, the design requirements for a disc brake specific rim versus a rim brake specific rim on the road are, are quite different. And so, um, just the basics: a rim brake road rim um, is typically going to uh, require more material um, because of the fact that it is also acting as the rotor or your, you know, at, for, for stopping, you're using the rim itself as the rotor to slow down. Um, and so because you're braking on the rim, that rim is required to, that rim needs to manage the heat and it's managing those extreme temperatures caused by braking on the rim at the same place where your tire is inflated and pushing out on those same rim walls. So it's a, it's a challenging design scenario. And so as a result, the rim ends up, generally speaking, being um, substantially heavier than, say, a disc brake specific rim. Because when you're designing a rim around disc brake specifically, you no longer have the constraints of having to manage heat at the brake track area, the rim's edge. And so you can really focus on um, impact durability, uh, at that at that juncture you can focus on keeping the weight down um you know like i said impact durability and tubeless um setup of course at the outer edge of the rim and really there's just different different things you can focus on where with a rim brake wheel so much of the design is uh, is driven or limited by the by the requirement for braking on that rim whereas on a disc brake rim all that all those constraints are removed so Really, at the end of the day, a disc brake specific rim from Envy is um, typically um, quite a bit lighter in some cases as much as like 80 to 100 grams of rim. Um, well, 80 is probably on the extreme end. So, But you, typically around 40 to 50 grams per rim lighter than a rim brake equivalent of the same depth in a disc brake specific design. Um, we're also using different resin systems that are more impact um, that, that manage impact better, whereas on the rim brake side of things, the resin systems are more designed specifically around heat management and heat mitigation. Um, and so really, yeah, it's, it's a very refined rim structure when you get to the disc brake equation. That's interesting. Like just hearing you talk through the various, I think you use the word design constraints and how a lot of those, because of the sort of advancement have, have just sort of been eliminated. Like you guys can just kind of you can play now, you know, like all of the stuff that you had to deal with before some of that, some of those same constraints are still there, but a lot of them have been removed. So the, the possibilities now are, are, are almost endless. It feels like. Yeah. I mean, it's a double-edged sword. I mean, in some cases it, in some cases, the ability to design a rim brake specific wheel that manages heat, it's such an engineering challenge that it was really a very, um, it was a real competitive advantage for, for envy. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, 
we we had our struggles with room break specific designs and it was you know right about the time that we solved the problem disc brakes really started to uh come on the uptake and so yeah. you know the rim brake wheels we we still make today and still sell a fair amount of are you know they're heat proof they don't melt they don't have any of those issues that really plagued um carbon clinchers early on and that was the whole progression and now with disc brakes it's taken that design challenge away from a lot of our competitors so on one hand it's it's sort of easier for everybody to make a decent carbon rim um, but for Envy, what that's meant to us is that we've we've uh, now been able to you know even focus more on the on the aspects of the rim that um, you know uh, more on the minutia of the rim design so that we can truly have a again a competitive advantage. And so what that usually looks like for us is okay, sure we can make a disc brake specific rim. We've been making mountain rooms for a long time. So what what are the what are the things we've learned from making mountain wheels for ten years that we can apply to the road? road disc or gravel disc specific rims that can you know improve the the ride experience and mm. so generally speaking it you know we have really refined laminates that mean the rims are lighter we've taken technology like our wide hookless um our wide hookless bead technology from the mountainside and we've employed that in the new 3.4 ar as well as like our gravel g series wheels and that that uh broad wide blunt leading edge of the rim um in, improves both, you know, pinch flat resistance as well as impact resistance. And so it's, it's those, it's, it's because disc brakes are around now and that's the, that's the focus of design for wheels. Um, you know, we're able to, again, refine that design and come up with new technologies that are furthering and advancing the, the capabilities of a rim design. This is awesome. I think that this is kind sense. of exactly what we were. No, it totally does. I think this is exactly what we were we were trying to get at was your perspective on all of this, and you guys have kind of seen and led a lot of it. Should add, um, not totally relevant to today's conversation, but you guys also make the best socks. I think that's worth mentioning. <laughs> well, Swiftwick makes the best socks, and we just sell a lot of them <laughs> with our logo on. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Well, good to know. There's something about that NB logo on the back, though. It just makes them feel a little bit faster, maybe. Yeah. yeah. This is good stuff there, too. Uh, this is awesome. Jake, appreciate the time. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Jake. Forgets it always rains during California. It's like a UCI guideline that it has to rain. <laughs> yeah. We're about to get it. Yeah. Anyway, we are not here to talk about weather, especially with uh, Nick Legan, who is the road uh, product manager, sorry, road brand manager for Shimano, and a perfect guest to add into our conversation we have been having about the modern day road bike and just what that looks like. Um, so, uh, Nick, we've talked to, uh, Chris McGovern a lot about geometry and frame design and sort of what that looks like. Um, we talked to Neil from Envy about, uh, designing components, um, wheels, bars, you know, all the places your, your body touches it or it touches the ground. And so obviously the last big piece of this is the group set. And, uh, in a lot of ways, a group set is, has sort of, evolved with it and also driven design changes. Like as Neil said, you know, like electronic drivetrains really uh, allow a, a different approach to designing a bar with sharper, sharper turns. And you, sure. know, you can, you can do more with the shape than what you can with, you know, worrying about cables. So um, you've been around this industry a long time. You have uh, been at the very forefront of sort of how bikes have changed. And just curious, you know, what is your opinion of what the modern day road bike is, you know, today and, and how does a company like Shimano really help fit into that? Yeah, well, first, thanks for having me on the podcast. Uh, real pleasure. Um, I think it's been really, really exciting to see these changes in road, you know, in drop bar or uh, curly bar bikes um, in recent years. Um, I think the trend has, has shifted away a little bit from uh, kind of a European world tour road race um, focus. Uh, obviously, we still support that. I'm, you know, I was watching the Giro this morning, um, but I think that road bikes or these uh, all road bikes or gravel bikes or whatever you like to call them, um, they've certainly um, expanded what's possible on a drop bar bike in, in some ways. And, and some people might pick that apart and say that, well, we've been doing this for years on road bikes, but 
I would argue that the bikes that we're doing them on are far more capable than they used to be. Um, you know, if Neil's pointing to, to electronic shifting and, and bars, I would point to disc brakes for road bikes. And that's what has really opened up uh, a lot of these possibilities for, for frame and fork and wheel and tire manufacturers to um, create a bike that with a change of tires uh, can kind of uh, go Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde on you, which is, which is pretty fantastic. Yeah, no, no question. And, you know, they did talk, we talked with them a bit about, uh, uh, the 4.5 AR Envy's wheel, which was a little bit of, it, it was sort of a little bit ahead of its time because there weren't very many frames that would actually fit it. It's such a wide internal profile. Um, and, you know, I think, uh, you know, speaking of Neil, like Neil was one of the, maybe the first people to when he was with um road bike action he i remember he he sort of monster biked a few um a few early builds for stuff that he rode and i remember actually seeing a shimano one he created a shimano one by system i think with one of the very first ones so yeah um you know what what has changed from then to now and you know you guys just launched the first gravel sort of a group set purpose built for gravel or designed for it. Right. So w- what does that really mean? You know, and who, who is that designed for that product category? Yeah. Well, yeah, uh, actually I was, uh, working with Neil and Zap at, at road bike action when they were kind of cobbling those bikes together. And that was a fun time because it was very much kind of, um, well, it was cobbling bikes together. It was kind of m- making do with what was available. And that is very much, I think, kind of, it's part of the spirit of this kind of gravel and adventure scene, which is pretty cool. Um, but now with GRX, and, and we are making a claim, it's the world's first dedicated gravel group set, um, you have you don't have to do that so much. Um, we have these parts that play really nicely together. They're designed to work together. Um, so your experience can hopefully be uh, far better out there on these roads, dirt roads and gravel roads. Um you know, Shimano, uh, in this, in this case, we, we spent a lot of time kind of figuring out what we thought. And, and to be honest, a lot of time listening to gravel riders about what they were looking for, uh, in components. And, uh, obviously, you know, what we've put out into the world now, um, isn't just one solution. Um, it, it's a whole series of solutions. So whether you're a fan of one by or two by or mechanical or DI2, um, we have a lot of different ways to kind of go about um, riding those roads and trails that you uh, personally want to tackle. So um, we're really excited about GRX. The reception so far has been really, really fantastic. And um, I'm excited to get on it uh, as soon as I can get some parts in my hand. <laughs> well, let's talk to a little bit about specifics, like big picture, totally understand the concept of GRX, but like, what are some of the specifics that are, that like, you know, for the gearheads out there, they would appreciate here are a few of the the kind of new and cool things that you guys have done. Sure. Uh, well, first of all, we have, we have one by, um, for dedicated for drop bar, which is, which is, that's a big one for, for a lot of people out there. Um, you know, it's something that we kind of wanted to see if it would stick around and it has, you know, a lot of people really love it. Um, so we wanted to make sure we had an, uh, an offering for those people. Um, so in that, in that case, we have uh, a 40 or a 42 tooth chain ring, and that can be paired on the back with an 1140 or an 1142 tooth cassette. Um, we do have DI2 and mechanical versions for that. Um, so that's something we're really excited about. And obviously then you can also run that, that one by with a smaller cassette. So the 42 is the largest, um, but because you could run it with a 34 or 32, it also makes a fantastic cyclocross setup. Mm. So you do with the change of a cassette, you know, uh, and, and adjust on the B tension, you could convert your bike pretty quickly from a gravel uh, bike in the summer months to uh, more of a cyclocross kind of dedicated uh, drivetrain for the fall and winter months, which uh, is something we're also really excited about. Um, you know, one buy in the in the gravels, I'm sorry, in the cyclocross scene is really does, uh, dominate in North America. And we're really excited to have a fantastic option for those riders. Um, if you're more a fan of a two by, um, I fit into this category personally. And a lot of that has to do with my background as a roadie and how I use my gravel bike. I have two sets of wheels. So I have kind of a road set of wheels and a gravel set of wheels. Mm-hmm. Um, I like kind of maximum versatility and maximum gear range that are, that are two by, uh, setup offers. So in the case of our uh, top spec, um, there's a 4831 chainring com- combination. And then we'll also offer a 4630 in an 11 speed. 
And then we have a two by 10 offering as well, which is 4630 chain rings only. Um, so there's a lot of offerings there. And then you pair that with with cassettes and chains that are already in our line. So bike shops are, I think, uh, fairly relieved that this is compatible with stuff they already have in their shop. Um, we're not you know, we're not reinventing the, the wheel or the free wheel or the free hub or any of those things. Um, this will plug and play. You know, if you wanted to, if you have a 105 or an Altegra bike right now, you can put a GRX rear derailleur on there and you'll have no no problems whatsoever. So you can kind of pick and choose the things you, you want to adopt from GRX. Um, the one caveat there is if you want to use those, I think, really cool double chain ring setups, you do need to use our new front derailleur. And that's because we've changed the chain line a little bit uh, to create more space for those big tires. So um, between the front derailleur and those and those big tires. So um, lots of options there. So I'll, you know, I'll pair on my gravel wheels. I'll run that 4831 chain ring and I'll put, say, an 1134 on the back for maximum kind of steep grades and stuff and kind of exploration mode. And then on my, on my road wheels, I'll put like an 1130 and still have what for me is, is plenty of gearing. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't think, you know, we've touched on like, you know, electronic drivetrains, disc brakes, that sort of thing, but we haven't really talked about gearing and gearing has dramatically changed in a, a relatively short time, you know, going from, you know, the big boy, sure. you know, almost called world tour gears today, right? Like a 5339 down to to compact down to not even, I don't even know what it is. It's, yeah. it's below contact. It's subcompact kind of like yeah. towards junior gears. <laughs> subcompact. Yeah. I mean, that's a, but that's a pretty significant change. And you know, what, what has driven that for, you know, for you guys, when you're looking at developing new products, I think a hard look at reality has driven it in some respects. Um, instead of asking the average cyclist to ride what the pros ride, we're saying, what does the average cyclist actually need on their bike? What do they actually want on their bike? Uh, and when it, certainly when it comes to gravel, we found in all of our asking around that very few people were happy with a one-to-one -one low gear ratio on the climbing end of things. Um, the other thing that kind of simultaneously was happening, again, I'm going to point to disc brakes because I think that's kind of a, uh, a seminal moment in cycling development, disc brakes for road bikes, our tires started getting bigger. So if you do the math, a 4811 as your big combination with GRX paired with a 40 millimeter wide tire, which I would argue is kind of the most common size in gravel. That is almost exactly the same gear as a 5011 with a 25 mil tire. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I'm no world-class sprinter. I love descending. I live in Colorado and a 5011 for me on a road bike is plenty. And, and if I'm using that gear fully, I'm going really fast. So the idea that I have the same gear in my gravel bike, I never want to go those speeds that I'm going on my road bike on a gravel bike. That's to me as a, as a kind of average rider or mere mortal on a bike, that's somewhat terrifying. So I think we have plenty on that end. And then we're also offering something that's far lower than you could get, um, you know, geez, even, you know, six, seven years ago. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm right there with you, Chris. When I first moved to Colorado, I had a 5339 and an 1123 and I was just killing myself to get up these hills. Um, I think the whole industry though, has, has realized that we need to focus on fun yeah. in a big way to create, to create new ridership. And it's a lot more fun to, to ride up hills than to just cry up. Them. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, it doesn't really matter what gearing you give me. I'm still going to probably cry going up. There. <laughs> well, you know, you're emotional, man. <laughs> I, it, it, it's true. I, I do get emotional going <laughs> uphill, especially. Yeah. Yeah. But no, I think that's a really cool thing that, that the reference now is not, yeah. and no, and at a, I, I don't mean this, I don't bear any ill will to pro cycling. I was a pro mechanic for a lot of years and I respect all those athletes. Um, but, but they're right. the exception, you know, yeah. they're not the yeah. rule. And yeah. I think that it's really cool that the industry started to look at who, who is our, yeah. our average rider. It would be like if, uh, like clothing designers only release clothes for runway models, like that doesn't work for everyone else. <laughs> the only way to get to the grocery was in a Ferrari. That wouldn't be yeah. so bad. That would be okay, actually. You say that until you spill the milk. <laughs> well, if I'm driving a Ferrari, I probably can afford to have somebody clean it up for me too. But, you <laughs> yeah. know, aside from that. No, I think it's a really interesting point, you know, that basically the industry for a long time made products for the people that, that didn't buy it. They just used it. Right. It wasn't, right. that wasn't necessarily what the person who was going to open up their checkbook, you know, 
was sure. was was really a, you know perfect for them. So and, and we yeah. still need to continue to make those parts. You know, we and that's how we still learn a lot about material sciences and application of of technologies and things like that. So that those those athletes are still really important to us at Shimano. Um, but it, but they allow us to learn the lessons kind of in that you know the the crucible of competition um, to then bring that and and make that day to day experience for the average rider. Nick, you as are well. such a company man now. Listen to you, spokesperson Nick Lee. You know like that, this, you're killing it. It's impressive. Well, thanks. I, I appreciate that. I've, to be honest, though, I've always been a fan. You know, no, I, I, know, I know. There, there's a reason I took this job. You know, yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm giving you shit, but uh, we, we it, you're really good at this. We appreciate it. I'll happily well, take the shit. No problem. Yeah, I mean you have a you have a background that is kind of unique even in your in your position, you know, of um I don't know, you might bump Jake out of the way as being um one of the most knowledgeable or the most knowledgeable marketing quote marketing guy we've talked to, but he's I mean, you came from pro mechanic to journalist to um uh you know your your current role, but or, or, or also, you know, an elite athlete. And I think when you put all those things together, you have a tremendous Ooh. knowledge base. So it's good to see. I might that. stop you. I'm not, I'm not an elite athlete. I just ride really, <laughs> I ride really slow, really long distances, but, uh, okay. but I wouldn't say that I'm elite. So you're an but thanks for the kind words that does, that does stupid ass long races. How about that? Yeah. That's a better way to put it. I'm, I'm not, uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I make poor decisions. Average then. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> It makes you, yeah, it makes your decision making um, above average, above average in a questionable way. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, we've just undermined this entire podcast. That's yeah, okay. Well, we appreciate you uh, coming on to spill some milk with us on the way to the grocery <laughs> store. <laughs> <laughs> cool, Nick Regan, much appreciated. Thanks so much, guys. <laughs>